0: Hey folks, welcome to Josh's Worst Nightmare Oddcast presented by Denver Horror Collective. I'm your host, Josh Schlossberg, surveying the dark landscape of biological horror fiction. For this episode, we're being visited by Regina Watts. Regina Watts is an author of horror and transgressive fiction who has also been known to dabble in pulp. Her full-length books including Mayhem at the Museum and Industrial Divinity can all be found on Amazon or purchased through your local indie bookseller. Idol, her latest horror novel, is out Valentine's Day 2022. Welcome to my nightmare, Regina.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a beautiful nightmare to be a part of.
0: Well, you'll see. We'll find out. so on josh's worst nightmare i invite on horror writers to talk about an aspect of what i call biological horror it's a broad brush for living creatures and vital processes relevant to their writing this episode we're talking about the blurred lines between mental illness and mysticism so that's a very interesting topic and i guess the way to start is is there a difference between the two would you say oh yeah
1: i i think there is definitely Um, But it, it, you know, it really depends. I think the best place to start is with R.D. Lang, who was a a Scottish psychiatrist who um, uh, had like a a kind of an interesting uh, focus on the experience of psychosis and on the diagnosis of schizophrenia. And his idea was that schizophrenia was more of a theory to explain a particular set of psychiatric experiences rather than a mental illness per se. And that's a very um, compassionate way to go about things. I think a lot of schizophrenic people would consider themselves mentally ill if you ask them, because it (laughs) is a very difficult way to live. But I think ultimately, um, some of the points that Artie Lang made are very relevant to the mystic Um, because one of the things he says specifically is kind of like, how do you know it's psychosis? And how do you know it's like just magical thinking or mysticism? And his, his solution to that is basically like, you know, are the beliefs destructive? Are they so at odds with society and with the autonomy of other people that they cannot coexist with the autonomy of other people? Then it's mental illness than it is a form of psychosis but uh, magical thinking is not inherently the same thing in my opinion as mental illness although a lot of psychiatrists really like to act like it is
0: (laughs) sure well that's their job right they have to define the world through that particular lens but yeah you bring up a lot of interesting points here in terms of maybe the fine line between what could be seen as genius and madness it's like who's to say And then there's the idea of sane people will go insane in an insane world, right? So it's like, what is the official way of looking at? Our brains are just making up all these pictures and processing anyway. But I think that definition of, are you able to cope and function could be a good determinator of whether you're suffering from maybe a more severe mental illness or you're just thinking some cool stuff. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that we live in in the Western world specifically. We're living in a time where the body and mind are extremely divided. And, um, you know, I'm not into holistic medicine. I just want to make that clear. But I think the holistic experience needs to be this, the gestalt is maybe a better way to put it, needs to be considered when we think of things. I mean, you know, schizophrenics are having a biochemical process go wrong in their brain, but it's affecting their consciousness. And so like, I feel like we're at this point now where psychiatrists do feel like it's their job to kind of dismiss magical thinking and so on because uh, of Descartes, who I admire, but who is also like my mortal enemy. (laughs) and I feel like he really got us started off in the wrong way with the hard problem of consciousness that kind of developed after he came up with, I think, Therefore I Am. Um, And so, and by the way, footnote, I always like to point this out. Descartes had that thought while he was basically hallucinating, visitations from an angel under carbon monoxide poisoning one winter when he was locked up in a room with a little coal burning furnace so (laughs) again the mysticism and the mental illness are very they're indiscernible but they're not it's like you know what's the difference between that and the Oracle of Delphi, you know using fumes to connect to Apollo Right. So, yeah, so it's very interesting. Um, but I do think that because of the way after Descartes came in, um, science and as like a, a physical process and a physical measure and occultism split off. and before they had been very tightly woven. And so now we've got ourselves into the situation where it's either mental illness, a mysticism, you know, there's no shaman training really available to us in the United States and the West, as far as the tradition goes. So it's like, I think that in any cases where, like with bipolar disorder, it's kind of a borderline place. How many bipolar disorder suffering people have been incredible artists and mm-hmm. invaluable engineers and architects and all these incredible facets of society but they're deeply mentally ill (laughs) and even in severe cases of bipolar disorder uh, during manic phases people can still experience hallucinations a la schizophrenia so it's you know it's a i don't want to call it a mixed bag because that's really underselling it but it really kind of is Mm -hmm. and so uh it it is it's the insane world it's the problem is a little bit our society which is so uh, aggressive and so rootless right now because of Descartes. <laughs>
0: sure. sure. I think though we are living in a time at least where the neuroatypical is a little more accepted, at least it's even named and it's not necessarily stigmatized. Maybe like a baby step, would you say, in that direction?
1: Mm,
0: yes, but no, because what it is is
1: you have to be schizophrenic or bipolar. You can't be a mystic. And so Mm -hmm. I think the problem is that we're living in an extremely secular age as well. Um, where more and more people, the tradition that they're lacking is a spiritual one. Mm -hmm. And because of the lack of a firm, religious spiritual tradition that they're working in um they can't we can't get to the mysticism and that's how you truly raise the consciousness of the people ultimately you know that's who should really be writing our fiction instead of having a bunch of middle grade fiction we should be having you know more Jewish horror authors and more like mystical. The the, the I always see the visionary and metaphysical uh, section on amazon.com, which is like, you know, it's always like 20 different versions of The Alchemist. <laughs> and, uh, You know, so it's like, we need more. We, those are the books that people should be reading. Um, and instead, mainstream fiction is so committed to YA and middle grade. That it's like, it's impossible to break through and to expand people's consciousnesses through this art form, um, unless they're like really looking for it, you know. And on the one hand, you do want people who are seekers to find this stuff. But on the other hand, you know, like, you never know what's going to inspire somebody. I've been replaying Final Fantasy VII, and the number of references in that game to, like, Alchemy and Kabbalah and just everything is so intense for me to discover that I feel like, you know, playing that game seeded me for interest in all this much later in life. So it's like, you know, it's the responsibility of the artist to be a little insane, but to harness it in a healthy way, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Right. <laughs> Because if you're just off in La La Land, you're not going to be writing your drafts and submitting your drafts and putting, yeah. yeah, it's just not gonna happen. So I think you bring up a great point though about the lack of spirituality in our secular culture. And so people are just maybe called whatever, but they're not gonna call be called a shaman, right? Which is what they, the role they would have had in the past. And everyone knows, okay, this person is a little weird and maybe he doesn't, he's not, su- fitting perfectly into civil society which is typically why they live on the outskirts but it's a very important role in fact it's always been a very revered role but nowadays you just get the crazy label and there's none of the reverence
1: yep no it's you know i mean it's like uh we're we're missing a whole psychological archetype in this time it's The, you know, I think my favorite thinker probably still of the 20th century is Carl Jung. And one of, you know, his most fundamental um, explorations was of the collective unconscious and archetypes that have to be um, kind of embraced both by every individual and also by society. Because if we don't embrace those archetypes, they'll uh, manifest in, you know, compensatory ways that are maybe more negative or they seem negative because it's to teach us a corresponding lesson, you know? So it's like, we don't have the wise old man anymore. We don't have John D who was the court magician to Queen Elizabeth. Um, so since we don't have that figure anymore, now we've got, um, you know, uh, like Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos. So the wise old man has become instead uh, transplanted onto money and materialism and capitalism. And it's like, we don't, you know, uh, I can't ever pronounce this uh, gentleman's name, Han, the mm-hmm. uh the monk who just died. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's very symbolic. We're going to be having a lot of religious leaders die soon. The Dalai Lama is not long for this body, I, I suspect. And, mm-hmm. You know, so it's like we're going through this really symbolic shift in my mind, where it's like the king is dead, long live the king, and the king is now money. Um, And so I think we really have to be careful. There's a a study that really interests me. I wrote an extensive article about this, so I'm very prepared. This was a couple of years ago. And at the time I was writing, this study had just come out, and it essentially said Um, the more an individual uh, relies on the government for things like health care or food stamps or whatever, um, the less likely they are to be religious, which is very interesting to me. And part of that, I think, speaks to how, um, you know, uh, the church and, and, um, you know, plenty of Uh, temples and mosques all serve their communities with free food and and classes and whatever. And they they tend to draw people in um, with the gentle embrace. But I think, so you lose that segment of people. And then there's just the general segment of people who maybe wouldn't have gone to church anyway, but who um, need some form of welfare. So they get it from the government. And I think that would just inherently decrease your chances of getting interested in a religion because you then become more indebted psychologically to the government. And I'm not saying by any means that welfare is a bad thing. I think it's a very important thing for a society. And, you know, universal health care is very important. But I think that ultimately, you know, um, as the governments of the world have become more and more powerful and more and more far-reaching and omnipresent, really. I mean, you know, able to look into our phones and look into this and look into that there's less room for uh, religion and religious thought in a way. Um, And so it's really, it's really a problem. And I think um, we're seeing the archetype of religion itself becomes manifested in these new ways, because we still have the need for these thoughts, but instead you get um, people worshiping anime girls like Hitsune Miku and people, um, you know, uh, worshiping celebrities. And you have all these different transpondences of the Godhead on all these different things except for itself. And so I think the most important thing is for the artistic mystic, working in the modern day is to take that spark and protect it. Like Gene Wolfe talks about this a little bit in uh, his book, Earth of the New Sun, which is the fifth in a series called Book of the New Sun, which is highly recommended. And one of the things he tells in this book is there's like a fairy tale about like the the keepers of information in like a post-apocalyptic society, basically, And uh, the metaphor is, you know, it's the keepers of, like, the soul information, the spiritual information that has to be guided and passed through all these various hands. So it's like, even though we're living in a time where on a broad social level, there's going to be a lot of people who are disconnected from the tradition, what we can do as artists is slip the tradition into our works and, and hope that people will find them and uh, become enlightened and become liberated and hopefully move out of a zone where it's like either you're mentally healthy or you're not healthy and any magical thinking is not healthy to this place where it's like as long as I'm not hurting myself or anyone else and I feel magical thinking, for lack of a better term, benefits me, um, you know, that shouldn't be a problem.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, that's really fascinating stuff there. And I too have read a lot of Jung and appreciate a lot of his concepts, archetypes, and the shadow, particularly. That's something that I think is central, of course, to horror fiction. You can't hide from that stuff. And anytime people are like, oh, why are you dwelling in this? Oh, well, I agree. If you dwell in it too much, that's one thing. But you got to look into it, man. You can't just push that down because something fills the vacuum. And I think you're right that. The ebbing of spirituality, however you want to frame it, what has taken its place could be government, celebrities, money. I also think ideology has taken its place. So people almost mm-hmm. take on these fundamentalist black yep. and white views of the world that they. a lot of those people really dislike religion, but they don't realize that they're an adherent to their religion anyway.
1: Yeah, it's a form of tribalism, and it, um, gosh, I do, oh, I do have it. Um, Robert Anton Wilson, the author of Cosmic Trigger and um, many other books, including the Illuminatus Trilogy, um, talks in this book about um, uh, Timothy Leary's theory of uh, consciousness, and he goes into it a little bit more extensively in his book Prometheus Rising, And he has a really interesting breakdown of it, but the, uh, I'm sorry, the eighth circuit model of consciousness um, is um, a really interesting kind of guidebook to how consciousness develops in the brain and how the human relationship toward the self and toward conflict develops in the brain over time. Hmm. And essentially what we have, because It goes like, you know, the first level is like a pure, just like um safety, comfort, connection associated with like breastfeeding and the mother and softness and protection. And uh, so it's like very basic and people who avoid conflict. Um, and then you get to the second level, which is the people who are full of conflict because their consciousness stopped developing when they're toddlers, basically. And So it's this aggressive dominance, this tribalist thinking that we see ourselves getting into. And then, you know, you have the next step, which is the people who are not obsessed with dominance or submission, but instead they're obsessed with just like sex and the attainment of sex. And then you get into the religious level, which is that interest. And then beyond the religious level, you get into the mysticism level, And beyond the mysticism level, you get into increasingly just like abstract, far-reaching, unthinkable levels of consciousness that um, are referred to as like the metaprogrammer, which is the God consciousness that can help you reset certain undesirable aspects of your personality or your habit or whatever, if you are able to access it. And I think really part of the problem that we're seeing in society in terms of not being able to hit that religious level anymore is the internet. Because what is the internet if it's not a place to argue with someone until it's time to go jerk off, right? (laughs) And then you go to bed and it's like, then you go to work and then you come home and you argue with people on the internet and then you jerk off and then you go to bed. And it's like, where in that period of time are you ever going to think about God? (laughs) So I, I honestly feel that the internet has been a supremely devised tool of subjugation for the past like 10 to 20 years. And it's been, you know, it hasn't been conscious because of course it's the unconscious's desires to subsume all consciousness. Uh, the existence of consciousness is antithetical to unconsciousness and so the unconscious mission of unconsciousness is to make more unconsciousness so it's not like this insidious mm, illuminati mm-hmm. is rubbing their hands together right, right. and you know breeding these you know insidious people to you know control us it's just that we as a society um, find it more comfortable to be unconscious. And so because of that, all of the mechanisms tend naturally toward unconsciousness. And so we have to resist that as people and and you know fight through it. And in fighting through it, we often have mental illness <laughs> because when you're conscious, you're more likely to experience things like depression. There's a, you know, a lot of studies that link higher levels of intelligence or at least correlate higher levels of intelligence with a greater likelihood of depression. And I think that's for a good reason. Alistair Crowley talks in some of his books about how um, I think it's in four where he talks about when you're meditating the experience of meditation you quickly find is the experience of pain because you sit there and you close your eyes and you try to clear your mind and what do you feel you're like oh my hips uncomfortable oh I don't like how I'm sitting this floor is too hard I've got to sneeze you know so your first consciousness your first waking out of unconsciousness is pain and so um when you are fighting to be conscious in an unconscious world, it's a very painful experience. And I think it's invaluable to kind of embrace that pain as much as you can. um, And to kind of move through it into uh, a greater form of enlightenment. You know, it's why God is always testing the Israelites and and crucified Christ. You know, it's just, (laughs) it's, that's why is because it's, how you become conscious.
0: That's fascinating. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, you should definitely have a YouTube channel if you don't already.
1: I think about it sometimes, <laughs> but it's like, do I want to commit to that? <laughs> I'm not active enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, some people who are popular YouTubers put out a video every four months. So that's true. You wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to, to give
1: it a shot on these days.
0: But yeah, I love what you're saying there. And I think you're totally right in terms of there aren't these mustache twirling villains who are like I know this is what I'm going to do this new porn site but the idea the unconscious unconscious mind that's creating the unconsciousness I think is totally right on and some of the thinking in that realm which was going on more in the 90s Terrence McKenna was somebody who I followed a lot of stuff he's sort of a Mm -hmm. a psychedelic guru so that's kind of what linked me into spirituality stuff because I was never super spiritual even though I grew up Jewish. i mean i wasn't spiritual at all let's just put it that way but the psychedelic world that kind of brought me back and then things in fiction like carlos castaneda the teachings of don juan even though those are probably pure fiction doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't even matter if they. yeah no it doesn't who cares so it's still like getting into that that mystical headspace and doing it through fiction but some of the the stuff in regards to all right if we get into those mindsets what we have science telling us now it's it's purely a biochemical process, which I mean it may or may not, it might be both. And mm-hmm. a lot of mental illness is thought to be what imbalances in serotonin. And then we have substances that are clearly chemical substances, but they're doing things in our brains that seem beyond anything just like getting drunk, what psychedelics could do, because there are already pathways in our brain for that. But then you go on the dark side and you know the guy who popped off a bunch of people from the clock tower in Texas back in the yeah. day, they Whitman. found that right, there were lesions on his brain. So physically something potentially wrong with his brain to, and then that turned into him killing people. But obviously that's the unfortunate stigma of, okay, you're awakening to the reality of the world and we are living in chaos and there's a lot to process oh you are one of the insane you're the guy who kills people and it's like that is like such a tiny 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 percentage of human beings and i think like in alice in wonderland we're all mad here right so (laughs) it's like choose your madness and look at it as a badge of honor i think sometimes that can maybe go a little too far of course right where you just wallow in dysfunction but that's not what you're you're talking about but i would be curious how have you tried to tackle some of this in your work? Well,
1: um, Idol, which I have coming out, as you mentioned, on Valentine's Day, um, is about a woman named Melba Daniels who has for years been in telepathic contact with the movie star Rex Virgil. And she uh, tricks her cousin into showing up at the resort where Rex is staying in an effort to communicate with him because Rex has been uh, telling her to do this telepathically. And uh, as the book goes on, it, the question becomes, is he actually communicating with her telepathically? What is Rex Virgil? Is there a Rex Virgil other than the physical Rex Virgil that she might be communicating with? And what the hell is this monster, the gray man, that's been following her since she's a kid, Uh, so it's kind of it's a very ambiguous book and it's I'm always like really worried when I write this kind of a thing because I just can feel somebody getting on Twitter and being like this is so exploitative of mental illness but it's like to me I love Melba she's a great character she's funny she's very smart Um, and she is involved in something that we might interpret as mental illness, but that she interprets as this ecstatic experience of being loved by a divine being that may or may not be expressing itself in the form of a physical man. So it's, you know, it's like, yes, she's a problem. Is she holding him hostage in the book? And maybe killing some other people because rex virgil is telepathically telling her to do that yes but (laughs) (laughs) the thing is that even so there's still this question throughout the book of um you know is this somehow being divinely mandated truly um so it is one of these things where it's like um this this balance this more extreme horror themed balance between mysticism and mental illness but it's still the question because you know the old i used to get so mad at my catholic dad when i would ask him about evil because the catholic answer to evil is so unsatisfying it's always evil exists because god gave men free will And it's like, well, but what about typhoons and what about brain cancer and what about anything miscarriages? I mean, those things aren't, are they not evil experiences when rated in the consciousness? And so to me, you know, the exploration of evil as sometimes being a divine mandate or a divine necessity, revenge or vengeance is mindset, at the Lord kind of scenarios, um, I think are very interesting to me. And uh, it just ties in naturally with mental illness because you got to be a little bit
0: crazy to be Joan of Arc, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you do. Well, that sounds really incredible. Um, I'm wondering, just to close things out here, are you working on anything right now? And then remind people where they can find your work.
1: Uh, yeah. So right now I actually just finished a short story and I've got a couple of series I've got to be um, wrapping up here soon, but I'd like to get a couple more horror novels done throughout this next year if I can. I'm really trying to shift the platform out of pulp and more into exclusively horror. Uh, so hopefully by the end of the year we'll, we'll be at that point and you can check out my work at uh, hrhdegenitrix.com you can buy all my books on amazon and i gotta spell it out it's h r h d e g e n t r i x.com so you can uh, check out some things there sign up for my mailing list for some free short stories or you can just cut out the middleman and go to amazon and buy some books
0: awesome <laughs> well this was really extraordinary i'm so glad you could make it on and thank you so much
1: Thank you for having
0: me, Josh. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for taking a trip with me through Josh's Worst Nightmare, where I, Josh Schlossberg, survey the dark landscape of biological horror fiction presented by Denver Horror Collective. If you don't want to miss any of the great and sometimes disturbing weekly episodes I've got planned for you, be sure to subscribe to Josh's Worst Nightmare on a variety of podcast platforms. You can also sign up for Josh's Worst Nightmare e-newsletter at joshsworstnightmare.com where I share a whole squirming mess of bio-horror, including my infamous haiku horror reviews and my latest dark scribblings. Speaking of which, if you haven't already picked up a copy of my cosmic biological folk horror novella, Malinae, from D&T Publishing, you can find a copy of the paperback Hardcover or ebook at Amazon, or Josh's Worst Yours, Darkly, Josh Schlossberg.